Hello everyone, you are listening to the podcast in conversation with IPR and competition law. I am Aditya Trivedi, founder and head of the competition law team of the podcast and your host. I am Rigang Patel, the co-head for the competition team for this podcast and your co-host for this particular episode. In this podcast, we usually discuss competition law updates and invite competition law lawyers and academicians all across the world as our guests. Let's welcome our esteemed guest for today's episode, Mr. Seeklear Nomalo, Senior Associate of Competition and Antitrust Law at Baker McKinsey, South Africa. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Adisha. Sure. The topic for today's podcast is competition law in the digital economy and African perspective. Introducing Mr. Numalo to all of you, he is a senior associate in Baker McKinsey's Antitrust and Competition Practice Group in Johannesburg, South Africa. Mr. Numalo represents blue chip MNCs on their high value transactions, which are highly complex in nature and expand all across the African countries. He is also a part of multi-firm, multi-jurisdictional team that won the GCR 2020, that is the Global Competition uh, Review Award, for the Merger Control Matter of the Year for the Asia-Pacific, Middle East and Africa. He also happens to have rich experience in industrial manufacturing and transportation, that is the IMT, healthcare and TMT practices. Mr. Nomalo also writes for various business and legal publications all across the world and is also an, an occasional business conference panelist. Very, very glad to have Mr. Thank Mark you for introducing our podcast. Thank you. Yes, let's starting. Let's start the conversation. No matter how can we define the digital economy and what are its basic challenges to present competition legislations? Yeah. Uh, thanks for the question. I mean. Um, I think at a fundamental level, what the digital economy refers to uh, is the use of information technology to create or adapt market or consume goods and services. And what we are seeing, obviously, and, and, and which is how we're conducting this podcast interview right now, is more people are using smartphones, tablets, smartwatches and bracelets and other mobile internet devices to connect to this wider global environment anytime and anywhere. So you've got millions around the world taking part in the digital economy uh, through buying and selling of goods and services online. And there are really three components that distinguish the digital economy from regular, from the regular economy, right? And 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 you you, you can look at it uh, from a from an infrastructural perspective first and foremost. Now, what what, what, what what are the aspects of that is businesses have software, hardware, and other technological resources, plus specialist human talent. Secondly, it's e-business. Now, this refers to computer applications, online tools, and digital platforms, which help carry out business processes. And the last one is e-commerce, which is a very familiar concept. Um, and it means the sale of goods and services online. And I think we can all agree that there are huge benefits that we are seeing as a result of the digital economy, right? As an example, it is transforming age-old production sectors in the agricultural space. Mobile apps connect crops to farmers. That's just a practical example. And, and it provides them with real-time updates on quality soil and irrigation to make management decisions. Now, 
what are the challenges presented by the digital economy from an antitrust regulatory and enforcement perspective well i think in the simplest form the digital economy is characterized by among other things multi-side platforms large retains to scale and complex network effects so you've got novel features of it that shape interventions in digital markets and 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 they require nuanced approaches by authorities some of these features include number one responsive innovation present present in digital markets which are also the desired outcome of competition policy you've got regulatory interventions therefore there is a need to balance the need for inclusivity with the desire to maintain innovation secondly there is a possible tendency towards concentration mover advantage and what first mover advantage means is the firm's ability to be better off than its competitors as a result of being first to meet to market in a new product category you've got data accumulation and network effects as well as exclusionary conduct this requires competition policy to proactively identify and prevent entrenchment strategies before they are too difficult to reverse in the market thirdly well-informed consumers coupled with ease of entry in some secondary and tertiary levels of digital markets which means that consumers can define their preferred benefit with relative speed and accuracy this again calls for competition agencies to balance the long-term policy goals of economic growth with the more immediate stated preferences of consumers and lastly you've got the rapid pace of change which calls on regulators really to constantly monitor developments and be willing to adapt their thinking as circumstances change so you know that's those are the features some of the features at a basic level uh that characterize uh the digital economy and make it uh a really challenging space for antitrust enforcement and regulation thanks for such an elaborative answer especially the step by step analysis as to what is the what are the basic characteristics of a digital economy and the subsequent antitrust challenges thereon it is indeed practical to have uh, to reap the benefits of digital econ- digital economy in general but for sure like there are emerging antitrust issues as you deliberated so yeah. moving further so what do you think about the status of digital economy and digital markets in africa if you could elaborate something on that yeah i mean and i think i mean it's not a just a regional specific uh question um because in some ways digital markets are subject to different dynamics than traditional markets right regulators in africa as well as around the globe have been grappling to understand the state of competition and the adequacy of existing laws and policies to protect our area and and that's really the status of where we are currently and we've seen this being accelerated by uh the covid-19 pandemic and i think we can all agree that no one has yet uh you know no one yet has the measure of how competition will play out in the future uh and whether great intervention may ultimately be best uh, be the best rather cause for a dynamic and innovative digital space so in a nutshell we we do not yet have a similar regulatory regime to the say for example the UK's digital markets act which seeks to impose stringent compliance rules on large online platforms i think we are well on course in understanding these markets with the benefit of market studies 
South Africa is, an, is, a, is a case in point where there's currently a market study uh, that's ongoing uh, for online markets. And, and, and there's also the benefit of work that has already been done elsewhere in the world, uh, in the EU, in the US, around understanding the digital economy and markets and the implications for, for, for antitrust regulation regulation and 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 if we need to change the current laws which we do by the way uh, what direction should we be taking and i think that's the status uh, of where we are presently in africa thank you so much mr numalo digital market the status of digital economy in african co- question related to this there's an increasing focus by antitrust regulators what are the predominant concerns regarding big tech in the african continent yeah again uh, i think we shouldn't confine this to a specific regional territory right because for me what's remarkable is that in today's geopolitical environment where leaders agree on very lately. I think we can all agree on that. Reigning in big tech is emerging as one of the few ideas that seems to be backed by all regulators. And the widely shared concern really is that big tech has simply grown too big. And for years, tech giants have battled allegations. You, you look at the states, you look at the EU, uh, where they've backed allegations that they favor their own products in online marketplaces that they operate. They abuse their privilege, access to consumer data for competitive gain and stem competition by acquiring every firm that threatens to challenge their market po- uh, position, the so-called killer acquisition, uh, right? Argument, or rather the narrative then is that these practices these practices leave little choices for consumers who are now dependent on the products and services offered by a handful of companies. And this is why the European Commission passed the Digital Markets Act recently, which seeks to give it new powers to regulate tech giants and other games that connect businesses to end users. And you ask, what's the reason for this? Well, it stems from the recognition that existing antitrust enforcement actions have not really made digital markets more competitive. So this act will allow the EU to ban outright a set of digital gatekeepers such as uh, self-preferencing or the use of competitor data. We in Africa do not have yet an equivalent law. But again, as I've already said, the South African Competition Authority is already looking at these kinds of practices and trying to understand them. And and you know, and we often look at 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 at, at Europe um, uh, when it comes to enacting some of the laws uh, that we've enacted to date, and certainly this area uh, will will be no exception. Okay, that was that was kind of interesting piece to hear, and especially obviously the, because of the. Uh, because of the quantum of resources the big tech possesses be it in the form of monetary uh, monetary boundless uh, resources or like even the data their transnational operation and uh, global reach is quite commendable and that is for the fact that obviously the uniform laws are needed to control their anti-competitive practices absolutely so, 
def- uh, so coming further with respect to their resources so money is a different thing but yet and altogether in the digital era data can 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 the data be considered as an essential facility if yes so how and why can it be also for the fact that if it all can be considered as a necessary facility what are the challenges specified to that interesting that you first said uh, uh, data in money are different things because <laughs> i think data is the new currency in in definitely, you know especially definitely. in the digital economy but i i do want to contextualize the response you know uh, to this question and now let's look at this roughly 2.5 quintillion bytes of data is generated per person per day through internet use the ability to acquire process and analyze large volumes of data gives dominant firms a comparative advantage in the digital market right so the accumulation and use of data have the potential to increase the digital markets of large rather digital firms the concerns can be exacerbated if dominant firms leverage consumer information collected on one side of the market to gain an advantage in the other side of the market that's why competition authorities are concerned that firms may use the data to exclude rivals given its importance in the digital market it has been debated and the debate is ongoing as to whether data can constitute an essential facility as you correctly asked and if so to what extent will the refusal to grant access to large data sets may constitute anti-competitive conduct right now how the laws uh, across different geographies are framed around um, exclusionary practices uh, and essential the essential facility doctrine as it were is that it needs so for data to be an essential facility right now I'm bringing it home it needs to comprise a resource that cannot easily be duplicated and without access to which competitors cannot reasonably provide products or services to customers to give you an example in south africa a dominant owner of an essential facility would risk abusing its dominance if it refuses to grant access to such facility to its competitors where it is economically feasible to do so but the i think we 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 all need to acknowledge that there are several difficulties associated with treating data as an essential facility and forcing data owners to share it with competitors and this is because data is ubiquitous and replicable therefore the same data collected by data rich entities may already be accessible to other parties and what you also have is that data varies in its value and usefulness it cannot be guaranteed that the data held by one entity is essential for the market participation of another entity right so you you also have the issue that placing an onerous obligation on data rich firms to share data may enable those competitors to reverse engineer proprietary algorithms and in so doing encourage free riding ultimately this would of course deter investment as we all know free riding deters investments and it would it would deter investments in this space in large scale data collection and innovation into data driven platforms additionally obligations to transfer data to computers may give rise to data privacy concerns so 
the, these are the challenges that no doubt regulators will have to grapple with in this space. Thank you so much for explaining on the competition aspects of data as well as the economics of data, as you mentioned. But network effects also, the data's consideration as essential facility. Thank you for elaborating. So what are the features of the present digital economy that require deliberation in terms of defining the relevant markets? As we see that in digital space, we don't have concrete boundaries as we have in offline markets. Also, why is it difficult to define the relevant markets in the case of social media platforms? Yeah, I mean, because I think obviously, you know, on a day to day practice, one has to define the relevant market. Uh, the application of competition law theories depends on how wide or how narrow you go when it comes to defining what the relevant market is. And what we are seeing in this space uh, of digital economy is that market definition is becoming more intricate, right? Because it's an evolving area. In the case specifically of two-sided platforms, now two-sided platforms provide the platform for e-commerce marketplaces and bring together two different but interdependent user groups. And the classic example there is the Uber case, which connects on the one hand drivers with, with the provider of the service and on the other hand drivers and the end consumers. So it's two user groups. Market definition in, 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 those, in, in those circumstances raise a number of issues that typically do not arise in conventional markets. In market environments with two-sided platforms, the question arises as to whether the relationship between the platform and the respective market sites can be considered separate markets or whether there's a single market. And this is for, 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 for competition law uh, purposes. There is also the issue of whether there are circumstances under which a market can be viewed in isolation of the other side or whether the interplay between both sides ought to always be taken into account, right? Now, following theoretical debates on this issue, one approach is to define a market for each side. Thus, each of the two markets can be analyzed separately while taking into account that they are linked through cross-group effects. An alternative approach is to define a single market for an intermediation services offered to both sides of the market. As competition law requires an assessment of market power, the problem in the context of two-sided platforms is that market, high market shares are a less likely proxy for the existence or otherwise of market power. Obviously, that's not the case in conventional markets where you can simply look at high market shares. Company A has, say, 65% in product X. Therefore, it must mean that company A possesses uh, market power and can behave to a large extent um, exclusively of its suppliers and customers. But that's not the case with markets. As, as, I, as, I, as I've already indicated. Now, high overall 
profitability may be an indication in platform markets that a platform has a mar- that, 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 that a platform has market power in some of the markets in which it is active. Equally, however, low overall profits or losses are not proof of the absence of market power. And one of the emerging views is that because market boundaries are difficult to define in change uh, rapidly and change rapidly in the case of platform markets, less importance should be placed on market definition in the competition assessment and more emphasis should instead be based on the theories of harm and identif- identification of anti-competitive strategies. Now, I mean, I think we can all agree uh, as to the, the potential problems that could arise um, outside of the more organized system of saying, okay, this is the relevant market. So if you can't rely on on, on, on the conv- conventional methods of, of defining markets, uh, because then they give you uh, false errors as to the parameters of the market, the question is then, what do you use, especially in the context of two-sided markets? Uh, if you use theories of harm uh, and identification of anti-competitive strategies, you could similarly lend, you, you are over-enforcing um, and, 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 and over-intervening on, on, on the practices of firms. So that is the challenge when it comes to two-sided platforms. Uh, zero-rated markets, um, which are, and, and this, these are the markets, uh, this is the market rather where social media platforms would fall because uh, social media platforms, in social media platforms, users do not pay money for the use of the platform. That is, users such as you and I do not pay for using, say, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. But of course, you've got advertising and they may pay those platforms for advertising through, 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 the, through the platform. So to define the relevant market, conventionally, we would use the SNP test, which examines whether a hypothetical monopolist would profitably and permanently increase prices by, say, 5 to 10% in a given case because it can directly assess the reactions of customers and competing suppliers to the price increase, right? So... It evaluates whether customers would switch a sufficient amount of their purchases from the hypothetical monopolist in a candidate market to competing products of suppliers outside the, com- the candidate market. In the case, there is limit to the ability of firms to increase prices, meaning that a SNP test is likely not to be of value for market definition. So the challenge then that you are faced with as a regulator but also as a practitioner is how broad should the market for online social networking and other digital content websites be to the to the extent that each of these products compete with each other for consumers attention right user rates etc market share variables in zero price markets will also need to be selected carefully since revenue is not available the most meaningful alternative such as share of users or share of interactions must likely be found. Um, so that's the difficulty um, associated with defining the relevant market in, 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 in two-sided platforms as well as zero-rated markets, zero-price markets. 
okay thanks for such an elaborative context on this uh, also for the fact that we're also aware that twin sided market twin sided nature of these markets makes it difficult and at times they also offer multiple services under the same umbrella and which somehow sort of acts as ancillary services to all their services so that makes specification of a relevant market in the narrow sense difficult and yet again if the market is elaborated broad enough the market power might as well not could not be established so thank you so much for elaborating further on this so how yeah, do you think that yeah yeah go on please yeah just a quick comment on that because what mm-hmm. essentially you have obviously you you could imagine a situation where if you if you narrow down the market to say um pro, it's 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 the market for the provision of product x where it includes y z and m as an example right then right. you 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 could lend uh up with the situation where you've got about five players in that particular market so you say well it is it, it's actually a highly concentrated market and if x holds um if company a rather holds uh, 50% of that market well it it definitely means that you've got a monopoly in that market uh you've got a highly concentrated market and few players as a, as a con- as a consequence but if you broaden the market find that y z and m compete with product x so and then you look at the players that play in product x y z right you say well how many players are in this space engaged in the provision of these products or services and you could end up with a huge pool of 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 companies that play in that space so you could move from uh, you know a 5 to a 100 market so so those are the you know i suppose uh dynamics that are associated with how narrow you go or how broad you go when it comes to really defining the markets especially in the digital economy because exactly. you could you, you could have a plethora of false uh, positives in so far as identifying market power or false negatives actually and that this very point of uh, broadening the market has been the practice of various mnc's which are engaged in digital market to escape that very umbrella of being are judged as the dominant entity in a particular relevant market in india as well a lot of big tech companies have relied on this concept that they do provide plethora of services and they do not narrow down their uh, particular market yeah. so as to include all the other players and uh, you could say escape the dominance factor yeah exactly exactly so okay so like speaking about uh, the public interest how do you think that the public interest imperatives play a role in development and implementation of competition law in the digital space well i think what is clear and i mean uh, you know i've got a better vantage point of that uh, being in south africa and what is clear is that governments around the world appear to be shifting away from the purely economic based origins of competition regulation whether you are dealing with digital markets or traditional markets um turning instead towards a model that acknowledges and to an extent caters to the broader needs of modern society so 
as a consequence, what we may see is emphasis on the empowerment of small and medium-sized enterprises in the digital space as a means of fostering a healthy economic ecosystem. And of course, this will require digital platforms and and innovation to be fully conscious of the need to open up the economy to many individuals and businesses that are to a large extent excluded from meaningful economic participation. And I think, you know, that's where it's at. Public interest imperatives that play a role in the development of competition law. Talk of competition law, we can't ignore cartelization, we can't ignore the emerging technology and has always been a prerequisite for cartelization as we know but with the adoption of artificial intelligence it's a price corporate price corporation used independently by two competitors what would be the major challenges in identifying whether there was any tacit collusion involved in cartelization how is artificial intelligence possibly enabling such behavior well to start off, I mean, I, I think I just want to comment on that communication or that interaction point because I think it is obviously quite apparent that digital markets have answered the nature of interactions. And precisely the million dollar question is to what extent can the use of algorithms facilitate arguments or coordination amongst competitors in relation to price and other trading conditions? in a more efficient way than traditional human interactions because I think there is general consensus that it, it does facilitate uh, that sort of interaction well at a more fundamental and general level um, it does facilitate uh, uh, interactions in, in far more efficient ways than traditional human interactions well removing the manner in which the interaction occurs right one has to consider whether you still have conduct that is catalytic in nature now competition authorities recognize that companies may inadvertently engage in cartel conduct through algorithms ask yourself how well algorithms utilize a precise list of simple operations applied mechanically and systematically to a set of tokens or objects uh, algorithms iteratively learn from data without being explicitly programmed. Uh, and, and therein is the rub. Without expertise and technological tools for diagnosing and identifying potentially anti-competitive algorithms and other machine learning capabilities, competition authorities will be ill-equipped to detect novel forms of cartel conduct, which could realistically result in under-enforcement. As an example, and which comes to the point, which comes to which speaks to the point around tested collusion, a firm may employ algorithms to adapt to market changes whilst ensuring optimum returns on investment or profits. But through self-learning, algorithms may align the prices of that particular firm to a competitor pricing in a tested collusion. The challenge then for antitrust regulators would be demarcating catalytic flow of virtual information resulting in test collusion, right? And that means where the algorithm 
uses a sample of labeled data to learn a general rule that maps it inputs to our you, the, the challenge is demarcating that from mere market transparency and machine learning adaptation to such detected market trends and 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 really that's that's the major challenge because you could have flow of information as a result of uh, coordination of some sort through um, uh, through uh, you know the use of algorithms uh, but it's but 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 it could also be you know flow of information uh, as a result of um, market transparency and machine then and so the the it, it's where you draw the line in the sand and say well there has been coordination that there, there has been alignment that feeds uh, the elements of uh, collusion uh, in a competition law sense and we we don't have the laws that cater to to this yet um, hence there is the need and 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 certainly there is the debate as to whether the current uh, legal framework um, is sufficient to 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 capture uh, collusion as a result of um, uh, alignment uh, caused by by AI, and I I, I, I don't yet. It. It's something that's been looked at. It requires to be looked at carefully. It requires practical application of mind and and the many moving parts and variables when it comes to how really algorithms uh, function. Thank you.